I want us to be at the center of solution uh, to dismantle systemic racism, which is not something that can be done like this overnight. It takes a long time because the, the situation we're in now took centuries to create. And it, I think it starts with knowing ourselves, who we are, um, what we bring to the world. I think that's really, really important. And if you know who you are and what you bring to the world, then you can you can start you know, making change in, in a way that's quite strong, actually. Not necessarily forceful, but sure of oneself. So Same. to kick things off, mm -hmm. um, I think it's good if we can set a bit of context and background. I'd love to get into some specific themes, you know, things like the Black Equity Organization and financial inclusion, racial equality, etc. Okay. and that, but it'd be good for us to set a little bit of um, background and context for people who may not be familiar with yourself and the work that you do. So uh, to kick things off, do you mind giving us a little brief introduction as to who you are and uh, what you do? Okay, so I'm Joyce Materego Woodall and I work as a <clears throat> Chief Operating Officer at Black Equity Organization. But oh, outside of work, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I, uh, I'm a friend. I, I live in England with my husband and, and children. We've got five children between us and they are uh, biracial. So that sort of brings its own sort of richness into, into our family life. But when they go out into the world, they're considered black. So that as, as well, that sort of brings an element of uh, a different kind of context to my life. Yeah, that's it. Okay, great. So let's take it back and talk about your upbringing, how that shaped who you are. So you were born mm -hmm. in Tanzania, right? Yes. Okay, so can you talk a bit about your upbringing, uh, what the environment was like for you and how you feel that shaped you to become the person you are today? Mm. So I was born in Tanzania during the time when it was very positive. And thinking about Tanzania, how uh, the years, you know, from zero to ten, um, my my dad was working for the East African community as an aviation engineer, and my mom was working as a um, clerk, computer clerk, that kind of thing. It was a very positive time, and I came to realize later, actually, during 74, 75, 76, that time, there was a recession in England. So when we were growing up thinking the world is fantastic and it was very um, uh, positive, uh, very abundant time in, in Tanzania, and I think in Africa in general, in England, actually, things were not so good. But because you have this idea that in, in Europe things must be better, you, you don't know until later when you find out. And um, Tanzania got its independence in 1961. So my parents were the new generation that was, um, you know, really optimistic, ready to build the new Africa they want to see. Um, uh, they were very much into music. So in my house, we would, we would listen to Fela Kuti, to Manu Dibango of Cameroon, to Osibisa from Ghana, and a lot of music from uh, Congo, what is known as Congo now. Um, yeah, a lot of that. Very positive, happy times. And when I went to school, uh, primary school, I was just a child. I wasn't um, a black child, if you see what I mean. So mm. I, I like to think I grew up in an alternative universe 
where, you know, the majority are black people and you have a whole spectrum of life that you have really good people, productive people, excellent people, and people are not so excellent, but they're just human beings. So you have the whole spectrum of a human experience. Uh, If I compare that to my children over here, they go to school and yes, they're children, but they're considered black children. You start feeling from a very young age, there's always feeling in forms, which ethnicity are you? I never had that growing up. And I think you have um, a sense of a fuller human because you don't you you don't feel you're being cat- categorized from a very young age of course there's a tribe you know which tribe you're coming from but tanzania is, was a special place because our first president made sure that everybody spoke one language uh, so we had kiswahili as the national language which now is uh has it's been recognized as the language of africa by UNESCO, and we have 7th of July, it's the World Swahili Day. So we we had this unity that you don't find in a lot of African countries. Yeah, so I don't know what else I can tell you. Um, well, that's, that's very interesting, and yeah. it sets some good context, actually. And one question that come to mind as you were speaking, mm-hmm. so you said when you went to school, you were just a child, mm-hmm. and you, was, you wasn't a black child. No. But then looking at you and your work and everything you stand for now, like before we start recording, we was having a, a very interesting conversation. And then with the work you're involved in, yeah. like with the Black Equity Organization and the things you speak on and the topics you're passionate about, mm-hmm. uh, you talk a lot about race and you work within a space or an organization that's campaigning. We'll get into that a bit more, but campaigning sure. and working on very tangible things to bring a lot of race equality to the UK mm-hmm. or within the UK. And I'm wondering... With what did you go through any kind of experience or something like at what stage did you start to did the the race aspect of things start to become apparent to you and mm. important to you okay growing up not so much i think it was more about tribes so growing up i had in my house we had four languages my my dad's tribal language my mom's tribal language both of them I speak a little bit, I can get by. Then we have Kiswahili and then English, which you learn, you know, at school as well. And then I, myself, I learned French when I was doing my um, O-levels then, you know, those ordinary levels in secondary school. So, yeah, you, you have that. There's tribes, there is uh, people who are educated, people who are not educated, there is also the collective um, knowledge and, um, and wisdom which you get from older people. Older people in, in Tanzania are revered. You know? So when I came to England, for example, finding out people take their older parents to homes was a shock. Mm. I just thought, why can't you just live together with your parents? I had the honor and the privilege of being with my grandma until when she passed away. She was 81 when she passed away, but... Because you're, they, they are so part of the community, they, first of all, it elongates their life they, because they feel needed and they have a, a role to play. They, they, they are very patient, so they teach you about the traditions, what is important in life, and they have this wisdom, which actually for me, in my philosophy around money, I think wisdom is the most important form of money because wisdom is the, it's the acumen. In business world, we call it business argument, but really it's wisdom. You know, if you are able to make the right decisions 
under the circumstances you have, you will nurture your relationships, which I think are the most potent form of money. You will choose to, for example, do the right things as far as education is concerned. You you will make sure you have the right relationships around you. You will nurture your intellectual property and look after it. You will save your cash when you get it as a result of good relationships. You will float ideas with people to create new things, you know, everything with wisdom. If you don't have wisdom, nothing then comes out of that because it's wisdom then how you relate to people and then everything else comes out of that, including money. Who would you say had the biggest impact or influence on you growing up? Um, that's a really tough question, you know. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, the it takes a village to raise a child. It's very true. But there are a few people who stick out um, in my mind. Definitely my parents. My dad was always about... Um, so he was an engineer, as I said before, but he was also a DJ. He used to play music. He was very much into the arts. My, my uncle, when I was growing up, was a theater actor. He's now like a filmmaker. Uh, so I grew up knowing that science and logical subjects are really important, but so are creative subjects. My dad was also into photography and sound, just sound in music, but also sound as um, the physics of sound. He was very interested in that as well. And he uh, he always pushed me to do better. My mom also, my mom was very, very ambitious, just ambitious, but without specific things. My dad was ambitious in that he would say, this is what you're good at and you should push for that. And I wanted to become a doctor uh, when I was growing up and going to school. But he said, you know, if that doesn't work out, you can retain your ambition, but always be flexible. And I think that's what helped me to say, okay, I can't do medicine for reasons I can explain later, but I can go into accounting, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, and my uncle, who who is an actor, who is an actor and, and a filmmaker now, always very influential to me. Um, I just used to admire him. He's the one who was um, able to relate to everyone and anyone. He's the one who had friends who were from Tanzania and from other countries. And he just seemed like... Uh, able to survive anywhere under any circumstances. Yeah, so those are the three people uh, that influenced me. Very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And if we take it forward a little bit, so something you said your father told you to, you can retain your was it retain your ambition, but you can be flexible, be flexible. in how you mm-hmm. achieve that ambition. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting because like you mm-hmm. said, you wanted to work in healthcare. I believe you worked in healthcare, healthcare for a little bit. And then, for a you, little while. and then you transitioned out of healthcare into the into the world of finance mm-hmm. what, what made you what was the ambition and what made you um do you know, make that switch or that change so i when i was in tanzania i did my a levels in tanzania as well i did mm-hmm. physics chemistry and biology then i won a scholarship to go to study medicine in india but when i got to india everything was taught in hindi and uh, that's language i didn't have the language so I decided to leave after a year, and then I came to England because at the time, um, Tanzania was is still a part of the Commonwealth countries. 
But then if you're from a Commonwealth country, you could just come to England without a visa for six months and you can either go back after six months or decide to do something else. So I came to England and then I started studying. And uh, that's how I sort of went into accounting because I was good with numbers and I thought, well, I can do this uh, because now we can use computers. It's not just a calculator and a briefcase. And then when you moved from Tanzania, I didn't spend too long in India, about a year or so, but when you've moved mm-hmm. over to the UK now, was it what you expected and was there any challenges that came with the transition as well? Yeah, so that was interesting. Coming to England, you have this idea that England is is like um, everything is great and uh, things are running really smoothly. And I, I got reality check really quickly. You know, I came here, I realized that uh, the pavements are not made of gold. Mm-hmm. They are homeless people. And in fact, I used to, uh, when I was single and on my own and without a family, I would just sit down with homeless people and ask them, how did you end up here? I, I've, I've come here in my early 20s. I'm not homeless. And I don't have anyone in this country. And you are homeless. And you're white. You're born in this country. How? And then they will tell me their stories. But it always... I think that's when I started thinking uh, relationships are money. You know, in, in Tanzania, people say, have a lot of children because uh, children are wealth. But I think without realizing that they're talking about relationships being money because if you have people around you nothing can go wrong and if you cut yourself off from people this is what I found out and it's anecdotal so it's not everyone who is homeless some people have got um, maybe addiction problems but there's always breakdown of relationships that's the constant breakdown of relationships lead to other things or addiction to breakdown of relationships to homelessness you know Mm. So that so that was a surprise for England and and um, uh, what else? I expected a meritocratic country where you work hard and you get opportunities, and that was true. Um, I didn't expect the racism to be so subtle. That was that that mm. took time to adjust. You know, people uh, in England are very. If there's racism, yes, it can be overt, but most of it is quite subtle. So you have to really listen and observe to know that you're being marginalized, you know, um, in in a lot of cases when it's not confrontational. When you're, we are, you're dealing with the police and they're hand, manhandling you or something, that's different. And again, it's worse for, for boys and men. So I, I think me as a woman... I've heard a lot of stories, I've seen videos, but I haven't had that um, personal contact with the police in a negative way. Yeah, I think uh, when it comes to those different forms of racism, whether it's Mm. over or a bit more subtle, I think a lot of black people or black British people can relate in their own different ways. Mm. Uh, You've got some, and sometimes in a way, when it's overt and it's in your face, at least you you know where you stand. Right. Uh, When it's not, (laughs) And then you have to ask yourself the question, yeah. like, oh, was that or was it not? Then that's then that's not great. But um, I think a lot of people can relate to those feelings, actually. Mm. And with yourself and the 
I know you, you well still in finance I see, but you've been in the world of finance for a while now, yeah. and with your experiences of some of these maybe more subtle forms of racism, and also some of the lessons that um, the wisdom that's been passed on to you from your family, from your grandmother, and whatnot, when it comes to the importance of relationships, mm. do you feel like these uh, two factors, and maybe any other things, if you want to highlight them, but are they some of the key driving factors that have led you down the path you're on now? You know, starting your podcast and also with the black equity organization yeah definitely i feel i feel like my whole life has prepared me to working for black equity organization because i believe um first of all i believe that black people as a people are just blessed with creativity and i think a lot of the issues that are, are in africa are not necessarily made by Africans themselves. They're part of the legacy of colonialism, which um, sort of divided the family, not in a harsh way the way slavery did, but still divided families by, or, or generations, by educating the younger people, religion. Religion was actually used as a tool to soften people so that the colonization can take place. And then at the same time, um, there were ancestral religions in Africa. So Christianity comes, and then you have younger people who are taking on religion. They become ostracized by their, their, their communities, or they want to go in and convert people into Christianity. And, and some older people who have lived in that way for a long time, they refuse, and then that creates like a chasm within communities. So um, I, I, I think um, going to Black Equity Organization, is, it's been my way of saying I want us to be at the center of solution uh, to dismantle systemic racism, which is not something that can be done like this overnight. Mm. It takes a long time because the, the situation we're in now took centuries to create. So we need to just take the time to dismantle everything. And it, I think it starts with knowing ourselves, who we are, um, what we bring to the world. I think that's really, really important. And if you know who you are and what you bring to the world, then you can, you can start you know, making change in, in a way that's quite strong, actually. Not necessarily forceful, but sure of oneself. So take it forward now and talk mm -hmm. about the black equity organization mm -hmm. can you talk about uh, first of all for people who aren't aware about what a black equity organization is just um a little you know brief as to what it is and okay. also how it was founded so i know it was mm. uh, from from my readings it was founded after on the wake of the george floyd murder and the protest and everything that ensued after that uh can you talk about what the black equity, black equity organization is what the george floyd murder the impact that that had on you as an individual mm, and also oh what the organization is doing to help tackle the systemic racism and things that you know that we've been speaking about yeah so the black equity organization was formed um after after george floyd was murdered i think it was 24th of may 2020 we were all in lockdown of course mm. and then this thing happens um David Lamy, MP, was talking to um, Kwame Kwayama, who is the artistic director of the Young Vic Theatre. And they were just having a conversation in a car saying, this has happened. And of course, you go into 
what usually happens in our communities, shock, uh, disgust, um, rage. You go through all those emotions. And then after that, they were like, but then we need to do something because we've been doing this for a long time, you know, pointing out the ills or complaining, but then we need to do something. So they decided to look for other um, people to talk to about the idea of starting a charity or an organization. And because they were two men, they said we should speak to women. So they approached Dame Vivian Hunt, who was working as um, quite a senior person in Mackenzie at the time, and then Karen Blackett, who is the chair of WPP. WPP is one of the largest advertising agencies in the world. And uh, those were the four founding trustees. And then others came on board. So David Olushoga is on board, as on the board as well. Uh, we had Yvonne from uh, Ubele. Um, uh, we have um, Siobhan, who is a kind of a young um, backbencher from Tories because we have David Lamy from Labour and we wanted to be apolitical. So we have someone from the Tories party as well and a few others. And that's how the charity was formed. Um, we also have, I think this is very unusual actually, on our board we have a young guy called Ethian Aken, who is 20 and is on our board. He used to be a youth MP at Camden, very, very outspoken. He's now reading history in Bristol University, but he's the youngest on our board. And we're really, really proud and feel privileged to have him. Yeah. yeah, and then also, so on what the the George Floyd murder, mm -hmm. what that, um, how that impacted you as an individual, and then what yeah. the the goals of the Black Equity Organization is in the wake of the murder. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that prompt. So George Floyd, when he was killed, I I was scared actually to watch the video. I, I heard a lot of things about it, but I was scared to watch the video, and I heard people complaining that it was being played out on television re-traumatizing people, uh, black people in particular. And for for people who were non-black, it was sort of like, oh my God, you know, maybe a shock, maybe, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure whether England took it well, because I think in England it was very much, this is an American problem. And then people started talking about, no, actually, we do have this issue in England too, in the UK. It may not be always overt, but it, it exists here as well. So we need to start doing something. Personally, after listening to all of that, then I decided to watch the video. The whole, it was, I think it was just under 10 minutes, 9 minutes, 40 seconds or something. How someone can die in, in less than 10 minutes. And it was just um, very painful. You know, I'm a mother. I've got a son. I've got a, a daughter. And um, we, between me and my husband, he's got two boys as well. And I was thinking it could be one of my sons. It could be my brother. It could be someone who is black, who I, I, I know anywhere. And... At the time, I was just thinking something has to be done, but I didn't know I was going to end up to uh, at BEO, right? 
uh, I wanted to be in an organization that is thinking of creating the world we want to see. There's a lot of movements like Black Lives Matter movement where people were very, I think we were all allowed to vent, to be angry, to, you know, bring down statues and things like that. And that's fine. But for me, I think because I've seen growing up, I've seen a world that can be created by black people and it can be good. I thought I want to be part of the change, but to create the world that I want to see. So in 2020, I was working for another organization, which is Deaf-led. I think that was part of my journey as well, because it's looking after uh, deaf people in the UK. One in six people in the UK are deaf or hard of hearing. So that's quite a high percentage. And they have a culture of their own. They have a language. They use British Sign Language, which is it's been now accredited as a language in its own. And I think it's going to be um, infused into our education curriculum in the UK. And they have not exactly the same, but similar challenges to black people. They are, um, they are born in this country, but they don't feel like they belong. Because imagine being born in a country where you can't hear anything. So really, they feel like strangers in their own country. And for me, that was like people who are black and have been born in the UK, always feeling a little bit like they don't belong here. You know, being asked questions like, where are you from? I'm from Tottenham, let's say. No, where are you really from? (laughs) And then you realize, oh, you're talking about my skin color. I'm from here, but, you know, I look different. And deaf people are similar in that. They just feel like they don't exactly belong because English is not their first language. It's their second language. Their first language is BSL, and they have their own culture. They're very direct. Um, They're very... uh, Even they... I I can sign a little bit, only a few words, but it's very pithy because you have to use the sign to get your message across and you can't be flowery with your language. And that, I found, there's a parallel between that and African languages. African languages are very pithy. They, we have a lot of proverbs and sayings, but um, we, we don't waste words. So, mm. for example, in Kiswahili, for example, we have one word for like, love, uh, being infatuated, fancying. One word. In English, it's like many, many words, right? So I think all that has prepared me to go into into BO. Now BO, it's set up to dismantle systemic racism, systemic, structural, um, intergenerational, you you know, all, all the issues that have happened over, say, four centuries, we want to dismantle that. And, and so it's very much about being um, nuanced in how we effect change, working with policymakers, pointing out and amplifying the problems, but also amplifying solutions mm-hmm. and working with people who are already in this space, who are smaller, who may not have the board that we have and has influence and uh, access to corridors of power. Yeah, so that's what we are here to do. And, and I think it's really an important organization to exist. That, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, a number of very great things that you've said there. Um, 
I want to talk about about the um, a bit more about the BEO mm-hmm. and the work that you guys do sure. um, on the systemic racism mm-hmm. uh, for people who may not be very well versed on what that is and how it manifests itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you touch upon that and then speak upon how the BEO is working to try and you know work towards dismantling that and create a more equal society for us all? Yeah. Okay. So. Um, systemic racism, the way I understand it and the definition we have at BO is the structures and practices and policies which enable one group to treat another group unfavorably based on race. So that's, that's systemic racism, really. And how it manifests itself, for example... In, uh, I'll give you an example in education, for example. If uh, people in the West or the majority who are white people have been told or they understand that black people are probably uh, better with physical activities, uh, not so much with cerebral activities. So you send a child to school, expectations for them to do well academically are very low expectations for them to do well in sports, maybe dancing, physical things are bigger. And so also there's always a looking out, particularly for boys, that because they're physical, there's a potential for them to be violent. And if they do something which is um, is not really understood by the teachers, they, well, they don't bother to, to understand. Maybe their voice is a bit of a higher register, um, is seen uh, like it's they've got animosity, and um, they don't have a lot of strikes before they're either expelled from school or, in worst case scenarios, sent to PRUs, which are pupil referral units. And we at, at BO we are doing some work around that. We believe that um, PRUs are like a pipeline into the criminal justice system, into jails. Um, black people in the UK are about 4%, just under 4%, but we have a very high percentage in, in the jail system, you know, which is it's not really right. And then in, in health, I would say, because BO is working across, across six pillars, uh, we have education, we have health, economical empowerment, justice, neighborhoods and housing, and culture. So in um, in health, how it manifests itself, it would be, for example, black men in particular are very, very likely to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act. And when they are being sectioned, they, um, they are treated as if they're potentially able to be violent. So if, for example, a Caucasian person is required to be calmed down and they're given an injection, for example, a black person will be given a higher dose, uh, which is not really not good because it can be harmful. But that's coming from a premise that uh, black people are generally violent and they're generally more physically stronger. And so to control them, you have to use more force, whether it's physical in the criminal justice system, you know, with what happened with George Floyd, or even in healthcare system, is about overdosing them, which again, that's that's systemic. 
and and it's it's um it's not that people when they go to medical school they're trained to do this but it's it's a practice and it's something that is part of their mindset you know so at BO the the work we do uh we 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 have two approaches one of them is trauma we're trauma informed the work we do is trauma informed we recognize that black people have been traumatized and so therefore any work that we, we do we don't want to inflict more harm to black people and we want to with our partners anybody we work with we want them to understand that and work with us from that basis the second approach is um we are, we are working in an assets based approach meaning if you want to create solutions that are going to affect black people don't do that without us they have to put the communities at the center ask questions be students of black people as opposed to you know coming with a solution that works for other races and say this is going to work for you too because we are we are slightly different we're not worse we're just slightly different just the way you are different as well yeah and then the the third approach is evidence based so everything we do of course we collect um anecdotal evidence we listen to people's lived experiences but also we take data that's already there we we apply the black lens on that data because a lot of the data out there is being done with um um the assumption that the the bigger world is white right so we want to put the black lens on all the work that we do and all the evidence that we present to policy makers to people we want to collaborate with uh yeah that's what we do that's that's amazing mm-hmm. so it's a very it's a very uh, inspiring vision i think i love the fact that you're solution orientated as well mm-hmm. because of course we need to know the problems and highlight the problems that's very important we need to educate ourselves on those but at the sure. same time we need to be very solution orientated and say we know what the problem is we organize we have our pillars and this is how these are the solutions we're going to present so that we can tackle some of these problems in the way that systemic racism manifests itself and work towards a better world and as you were speaking something comes to my head uh, one of my guilty pleasures that my wife has got me into I'll blame her. Blame the wife. I'll, I'll we get blamed for so many things. It's not fair. I'll blame her for this. I've been watching Love. Do you watch Love Island? My daughter does. Oh. I stay away from it. Okay. So I've been watching Love Island. Yeah. Um, and then we're watching it last night. And there's a guy. He's a white guy. Um, and then there's a, a challenge where the girls had to like throw a pie in someone's face, and he got a pie thrown in his face. And he was like, um, the girls, I think, well, they said, he said something afterwards, I can't remember what, he was like, oh, shut up. He's like, shut up, man. But he said it with like, yeah. so much of him. Right. And everyone was laughing. <laughs> and then we were talking, it was like, all right, cool. If it was a black guy, <laughs> shut up, man. Like that. Like, people will be like, this guy's aggressive. Yeah. You know, Offcom complaints, all sorts of things. But it's perception. That unconscious sort of perception that mm. we talk about. And I don't know if we're talking about it here or just before. Mm. We were talking this before, but about that that unconscious bias mm. in the ways in which it manifests itself. So yeah. someone, for example, you're talking about this healthcare example where a black patient is more likely to get administered a higher dose, which can be potentially dangerous. The healthcare mm. professional might not even realise, probably don't. They probably right. don't even realise they're doing it. They're just doing it because they think, oh, we need to calm this person down, something like that, and go to administer the dose without even realising yeah. on a subconscious or unconscious level that they've 
go on administer the higher dose they wouldn't even know until maybe someone checks them on that right but that's one of the ways in which these unconscious biases Mm -hmm. can manifest Mm -hmm. itself and that's just one very specific example but it manifests itself in so many different ways Mm. in so many different shapes and forms um and isn't great um on the 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 wealth side of things so that's one of your pillars and i know that's mm. more your background you come yeah. from a finance background you sure. speak a lot about the wealth um particularly from your a very interesting angle mm-hmm. from your philosophical relational angle uh what what are some things that an individual can do um and actually even before we get there because we're talking like well from a philosoph- from a the relational angle and it's interesting when you're talking about the makeup of the BEO, when you've got your trustees and everything like that, and then they right. can help you help you and the team to access certain certain rooms and certain people to help yeah. drive the kind of change you want to drive. Yeah. And that's through relationship. And that's something you talk about a lot when it comes yeah. to wealth building. For sure. What are some of the ways in which some individuals, mm-hmm. um, black British individuals, can work towards increasing their wealth as an individual? What, what do you think are some important facets mm. to... Okay, so I, I, I think I spoke about this before, particularly mm-hmm. with, I don't know if it's just younger people or it's because I hear it a lot from them. They have the, you know, I've got to hustle and get my bag and, and things like that. <laughs> and I, every time I hear that, I just smile and shake my head. Because I think getting, what, do, what are you doing getting the bag? You know, mm-hmm. where are you getting the bag from? It, to me, it just paints a picture of, um, almost grabbing, you know, the bag with money from someone. I think what um, everybody can do, not just young people, is to really nurture their relationships they have uh, from a very, very young age. I think we should teach our children. We should all teach our children and in ourselves, you know, just to remember that. Um I believe relationships are like the most potent form of money. So if I take an example of BEO, we are in a really lucky position that we are very well funded. We have um, most charities have got restricted funding, which they have to apply only to certain projects. Most of the funds we have is unrestricted, meaning we've been given funds to think through a solution, a long-term solution put a team together that can effect that solution and work over a few years. And then we can show this is what we've done, whether it's uh, research, uh, maybe change of a policy, and then they can give us more money. We wouldn't be able to have the cash that we have now in the bank if it wasn't for the relationships that our board has with funders and all the people they've... um, they've met and kept in touch with and and maybe collaborated with or worked for or worked with in a positive way, right? So that's what I mean when I say relationships are, are a potent form of money. Um, for at an, on an individual basis, it's exactly the same. If we are, uh, we are taught to relate to one another so that we can create together, then money will follow. If you're going as an individual by yourself, you present yourself in the best way possible and people remember you for the right reasons, your reputation will grow. That's how you you get... There's a difference between reputation and fame. 
fame, of course, can be a form of, of reputation. But if you have a good reputation, uh, it comes from you doing something right. Yes. And then other people will be wanting to work with you because they know if they work with you, chances of their project succeeding is high. And then when you're paid, you can share the money. But really, it's from relationships through reputation, ideas and vision, uh, intellectual property, knowledge. Everything comes from relationships. But then also it has to start with the relationship with yourself. So when you were asking me about individuals, what they can do, is just looking at yourself as well and um, having, first of all, a relationship with yourself, knowing that you have something to offer in the world. Everybody has something to offer. You just have to look for who is willing to, to either pay you or exchange something with you for what you've got to offer, right? And then in looking at yourself, there's another form of money, I think, is knowledge. When you know yourself, you have to know uh, a few things. One of them, you have to know uh, what you love doing. And then you have to know what you're really good at doing. And then you have to know what is needed by the world and what you you can get paid for. And the intersection of those four things is is the beauty spot. If you if you're there and then you start collaborating with people and forming relationships, there's no way you're going to end up without without any money. The intersection of those four things is where you find it's that where bag. you find the bag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's where it is. <laughs> exactly. So you, you have to just do something you love, something you're good at, something the world needs and something you can get paid for. And just do do the things the the, the cash will follow. So I think the money that we all talk about as money is cash, but it is a result of managing all these other forms of money. And the best thing that ties everything with a bow is acumen, wisdom. So if you're wise enough to nurture your relationships and everything else, then you, you, you'll be fighting the money off. It will just come, it will follow you. Can you talk about the... That nurturing the relationship side of things. Uh, so that, uh, we've got the, the reputation side of things. So mm-hmm. make sure you understand um, yourself yeah. and what you have to offer to the world and everything like that. But, and then on top of that, when you develop your relation, your reputation, sorry, you can help you with your relationship building. Um, but on the relationship building side of things, first of all, how do people, first of all, even develop relationships with the right sorts of people and then mm. nurture those after they've developed them? I, it's, I think it's like a muscle. It's like a muscle. I, I believe re- relationships are formed through having a common language, first of all, right? So if you're able to relate to people, it, it basically starts with, hello, how are you? My name is, and this is what I do, right? Or it, it doesn't have to be a very direct question. It has to be just talking to people and then finding out more about them as, as you go along. Um, I was struck by the education system in the UK, how it works, that some children go to course, uh, um, comprehensive schools, some children go to fee-paying schools. Most of the fee-paying schools, children are sent to those schools and they're already taught from a very young age that 
they are going to be part of an alumni. And that's where they start forming relationships. So there are people who are, even people who run this country, the white people, they, they've gone to schools like Eton. They know, they've known each other, some of them, from when they were like nine. You know, they go to university, they're, they're, they're forming relationships and friendships which last for years. Um, and I think that's the same thing that can be done in the black community. Um, and we, we have a saying in, in, in Africa that if you want to go quickly, go by yourself, but you won't go too far. So getting the bag, for me, is going quickly. So you may get, you may be paid, it be very transactional, do something, get paid quickly, and then that's it. And then in a few months' time, the cash is gone. But if you're relational, if you're nurturing relationships and you're making sure that, first of all, you know what you can offer, find out what others can offer to you, but not with the intention of taking, with the intention of collaborating over a long time, then in time, just the, the, the payments will start coming in. I really, I believe that because I am case in point. I came to this country when I was in my early 20s. I have no family here. And throughout my whole life here in the UK, it's been about meeting people, showing what I can do, knowing what I can do well, uh, showing what I can do, learning with people, sharing ideas, receiving ideas, creating whether it's uh, intellectual property or acquiring property as in land, and just nurturing those things, that's what has um, ensured that I'm financially um, stable and I would say successful, not in a financial sense of just having a lot of cash in the bank, but also the strong relationships I have around me, personally and professionally. So what does success, uh, you've spoken about the relationships and that being a form of success, what does success look like for you? What are, is there anything that you're striving for personally? Uh, I mean, now, it's, uh, for me, success is feeling useful in life, feeling that I'm contributing to the world. And again, you can't contribute if you don't have relationships to contribute to, right? So I think that, that for me, is success. Success is meeting new people every day. Meeting you. That's success. Oh, it's you. like, you know, when you're, when you're, you're not, uh, it's through my work, you, you found what I do and you thought this is an interesting person to talk to. For me, that's success. You know, I think the more people you are interacting with, the more people you can connect. So I know, you know, we, I connected you to a few other people. I think the more you connect people, the, the stronger the net. For me, it's sort of like a net. The stronger the net and then the stronger uh, the whole community becomes strong together. So for me, that's success. Success is not, is not buying the newest car or having the, the biggest house. Material things are, they are a result of success, not the other way around. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And on what you said, like with, um, thank you first of all you said uh, about meeting me and um, no with regards to you yourself because I came across your profile um, I've, I've seen the BEO for a while um, okay. and I came across your profile I think on LinkedIn 
and I was looking into you and I was like, definitely. Because yeah. first of all, your background in of yourself is great. I love mm-hmm. the angle that you come from. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, the B year and what the B year stands for and working to dismantle systemic racism is sure. a very important and not even noble because I feel like that kind of, you know, makes it sound as if oh, you're doing something nice. But it's a very, it's, it's needed. It's a must. Yeah. You need it. Like in this country, we talk about um, forms of systemic racism. And when I look mm-hmm. at some of these stats and negative, uh, in very generally speaking, then you look at uh, stats very generally, like, you know, wealth gaps and educational attainment and prison sure. pipeline, etc. Very generally speaking, you're going to find black groups or ethnic minorities at the very least towards the bottom end of all of these negative metrics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. M- most times, I rage at all times, but I can't say every single time. So nine times out of 10, most you're going to find time. that. That's a serious problem. Yeah. Very serious problem. Mm-hmm. And it's something that uh, we should, shouldn't have been allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. I think that if all things being equal, that these things wouldn't exist. Because it just wouldn't happen. The law of averages, things just average out and there wouldn't be differences like that. Mm-hmm. Racialized differences, but they are. And there's causes for those racialized differences. And then we've just got to do something to challenge those so that we can get back to a better society for us all. So sure. when I see what you and the team are doing, I'm like, of course, we have to. We should be here. Yeah. <laughs> we need some representation here for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'm happy to have you. <laughs> oh, and here, everything you. you've said about relationships as well is like mm. I've taken so much away mm. on that relationship aspect. Is, very very important i think the way you've spoken about it and the way you spun it isn't a way i've heard people necessarily talk about it before sure um, i've heard people okay. talk about wealth and wealth building and mm. um, more you know a bit more of a generic sense and some you know good bits of advice here and there but i don't think i've heard anyone stress on the importance of relationships mm. the way that you have so that's very good and yeah i i, I you know tevin I, I think i think it's, it's relationships but i think also with wisdom so if you're if, for example, you've you've made okay, you've nurtured the relationships, you've got a, you've got like not a windfall or maybe a stream of cash coming your way, then you have to apply the wisdom to to save and then invest that cash, right? I think that's another it's a tenet of financial success for sure. But I think uh, even my understanding of the work that we do at BO. Uh, being trauma-informed. When a people has been traumatized over so long, you hear a lot of people saying, well, I grew up with nothing. So now I've come into money. I want just to spend and just spoil myself and stuff. This is the work that we need to do within our own community, right? To just, I think it's the mindset that um, buying a lot of material things is not necessarily... Uh, wealth you know you may be able to to show it outside but then think about this if someone is a millionaire it's because they didn't spend a million not because they spend their spending money they became a millionaire because they did not spend a million so saving is really like it's almost like if you can't save you don't deserve to have financial success you know but as a group as a as a as a, 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 a demographic in the UK, we keep for every pound that we earn, we keep only ten percent, only ten p. Whereas other groups like the white groups, they keep ninety ninety p. Now there are so many variables to that. Some of them are individuals. 
individualistic that people are not saving. We haven't grown with this um, mentality that we should save or it's been so, the austerity has been so hard in the black community that when people come into money, they want to spend. There's also another part that, you know, there's no opportunities. So people would go to to apply for jobs, for example, you you hit the glass ceiling or you even don't get in in the first place because of unconscious bias or, or what have you, or sometimes overt racism, you know. But if you're lucky to to get everything together, say you're a footballer, for example, this is an example of people who are, they, they do what they love, they do what they're good at, and people want to pay for it right and it's needed by the world people want to be entertained by footballers so they've got that those four things are there and then their relationships will be their fans the team they're playing with you know if they're not very good with their teammates they can be kicked out so you see relationships are always there but once they receive them because they get paid quite a lot of money wisdom comes in how do you then nurture the actual cash you have do you invest in properties? Do you save it? Do you invest in shares? All that needs to happen. And that's where you, you can be educated, but if you, you don't make a decision yourself through your own wisdom, the cash can just go. What resources would you recommend on the wisdom front? How, how to manage money better? Uh, oh, the, my favorite book is The, um, the Richest Man in Babylon. Yeah, that I recommend to everybody to read that book, um, that one, and then um, the psychology of money, which is quite new actually, and it's quite verbatim, but it's it's quite pacey. There's a lot of stories in there which are you you read and you go, ah, oh, yeah, I recognize, I recognize that. But The Richest Man in Babylon is like a fable. It, I think it was published in 1928, which tells you that money problem is a human condition. <laughs> it's been with that since time immemorial. And I think it's a really great book. I, I recommend it to everyone. That's great. Yeah. And I'm aware of the time. I think we've gone over. <laughs> so <It's> fine. <laughs> I apologize, but I've really no enjoyed worries. speaking with you. Thank and you. And just as we prepare to wrap up, what advice would you give to anybody listening who's wanting to make some change in their life or in their community? Start. Start, start anywhere you are. Start small. I, I started with my, my podcast is, um, can I just talk about it a little of course, bit? Yeah. Mind on your money. And, uh, and I, I talk about money having seven forms. And cash is the most famous. Everybody talks about when they say someone's got money is cash. But I think there are other six forms of money which need to be nurtured in order for somebody to have the cash, which is what we, we know as the most famous form of money. Um, I would say that I wanted to do that as me effecting change in the world before I joined BEO. So now I've joined BEO, I'm doing this as part of my professional life, but also outside of work, I'm still doing the podcast. Uh, I talk to everybody who would listen about money. I have no, again, there's a stigma around talking about money. I don't think there should be a stigma because if you don't, 
the the surest way of failing to tackle a problem is not talking about it. So if you have issues around economical issues or empowerment or financial inclusion, we need to start discussing. And we need to discuss the factors which are preventing us from being successful outside of our community and within our community, within our families, within our own personal relationships. So yeah, that's what I would say. If you want to effect change, start creating the world you want to see. That's it. Amazing. Yeah. yeah thank you so much. Thank you so <laughs> no much problem. for coming. Thank on. you for yeah. having me. Really, really enjoyed our conversation today. Um, if too. people want to keep up to date with yourself and the work that maybe you or the BEO do, how can they best do so? Mm, well, we we have our website. So if you just Google Black Equity Organization, it will come up. Um, we are on Twitter as well at blackequity.org uh, and on LinkedIn as well. We're posting a few things, but Twitter mostly. Okay. Yeah, and then on Instagram, we do have a um, YouTube channel as well, but that is sort of taking time to come into its own. I think the more we have content, the more we'll have followers. Um, but yeah. That's where we are, we are online. We work in a hybrid model. And with me, I'm just on LinkedIn. Great. Great. And uh, have you got any final words you want to share before we wrap up? Or mm, uh, Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really, I actually feel very privileged to be one of a thousand voices. You know, I was going to ask you why, why did you choose me? But you explained that a little bit. I feel very privileged to be part of this um, project that you're working on. I think it's a very important project, really. Uh, I think um, what you're doing as well is to highlight the positive side of our community, which is it, it needs to be seen, it needs to be heard. And I would be very happy to spread the word. Make sure everybody and their mother listens to this podcast. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you for thank coming you on too, once again. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of the wisdom you have today. Uh, you. If you're listening, if you haven't subscribed, please do subscribe, like and share this episode. Like and share everything we do as much as you can. We're working to interview 1000 Black British change makers, people who are driving a lot of positive change and putting out more positive stories out there. So anything you can do to support and get these good messages out as far wide please do like share tell your friends you've shared to to like and also share with their friends and let's get the ball rolling but that's that for now thank you for tuning in thank you for coming to the podcast once again joyce this oh, is thank one. you for having me yeah it's been is, great oh thank you it's <laughs> definitely been great definitely uh this is 1000 voices and for now people we're out